Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember, your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites. It is our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. This message is titled, Who Will Rise Up? Who Will Stand Up? You know, all over America, college campuses are beginning to receive the uneducated high school students, preparing the stage for the next generation of sinners as they're being introduced to several years of handiwork in drugs, drunkenness, idolatry, fornication, certainly oblivious to Isaiah 5, 20-23. And nowhere at all will Psalms ninety four sixteen be found upon the minds of those youth, and that is, Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Question is, really, what is it that they should stand up for? See, when those who make it to church on Sunday will never hear a a condemnation uttered of any of this lascivious type activity, all throughout the 60s and the next generation of the 80s, our youth were being taught to love and to express oneself, but it's only been as described in Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. Verse 16 says, Destruction and misery were in their ways. See, these became the lawless ones who began to teach the children of the 80s and 90s to be twofold more sons of hell than themselves. Second Timothy 2.17 says that they were ever expanding their minds, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That certainly is exactly what happened. Take a look around you. I've been thinking about this lately. It the faces that you see and what do you see you see long faces and drawn faces sad faces for the most part but what does scripture tell us ecclesiastes 8 1 says that a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the boldest of his face should be changed you see when a man comes to the wisdom of the liberty available in the word of god his countenance and his attitude changes to one with the father To be one with the Father is to be with Christ, and Christ said, Think not that I have come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now we all know, a sword is a weapon of warfare, not peace. A man of God is that man who takes up his sword, which is his word of God, and follows the Son into battle. What is the battle? Let's go to 1 John 3.8. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Companion verse here might be 1 Corinthians 1.19, and it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So how does the man of God wield the sword of the wisdom of God to destroy the works of the devil? Proverbs 1.20-21 could give us some insight. It says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse. In other words, it's spoken. It's cried out. Where? Everywhere. Everywhere people congregate. 
In fact, listen to what God commanded Isaiah at 58.1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show thy people their transgressions and their sins. Now, just exactly why does the man of God do this? 1 Corinthians 6, nine provides this answer. Hearken unto the word of God. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I considered what the Apostle Paul did to confound the wisdom of the philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics of his day. After he proclaimed to them the resurrection of the Son of God, they brought him to Mars Hill, the great place of concourse of the Greek wisdom and the philosophers of the day. We find it in Acts 17.22 where he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by, I beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. You see, one of the things that we need to remember and understand is that what is to follow after having declared the testimony of God of all creation, you must warn the unwise of the sword to come, calling them to the necessity of repentance and of the judgment to come. Otherwise, you've not relieved yourself of the judgment for having not warned them, lest they should die in their iniquity. We find that at Ezekiel 33. Certainly, John the Baptist warned those to bring forth fruits meet for repentance. I'm sure that he knew that they wouldn't, but he did, in fact, warn them what they must do, Matthew 3.8. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul tells us, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved it is the power of God. It appears to me the sword of God has a handle. It's a handle of grace. The blade has the capacity for destruction as any sword does. Should we be at all dismayed, therefore by the goodness and severity of God, God holds the handle of grace with the hand of grace. Willing to withhold the severity and justice, the sword has the ability to exact. Do you think in God's goodness that he cares what the sodomite, the fornicator, the thief, the covetous, the murderer, the idolater thinks of him when he stands before them with the sword? I don't think so. Jesus, in fact, has stated who gets blessed at Matthew 5, 6, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. See, what's unseen in that beatitude of grace is that he who hungers and thirsts after sin and lawlessness shall remain empty and void. John three nineteen to 20 tells us this is the condemnation that light, truth, and justice has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. End quote. See, deeds unreproved by the light of righteousness remain as works of evil, and they're certainly subject to the sword of judgment. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, and put light for darkness and darkness for light. You see, what passes for Christianity today is putting this light under the bushel, which we're admonished not to. Scripture records uh, at Mark 16.15 that Jesus commanded the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. But the church world says, well, let's have children's church where the children won't hear of God's wrath, and let us have sit-ins and music fests so our children might know that God loves them through their music. Shoot, let's even have Christian debates uh, about baptism or whether saving or not, uh, grace versus works, and chosen versus loves everybody, and even creation versus evolution. No! What you hear in the ear, preach upon the housetop. Matthew 10:27. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Jesus told us in John 15:18, If you were of the world... The world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but that I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The modern church world, in fact, the Christian for the most part, have rejected the badge of persecution by exposing unrighteousness for a robe of acceptance and tolerance. Acceptance and tolerance of lawlessness has no ability or a power against the sword of righteousness, whether God threatens through his word, through his prophets, his ministers, and even those lights, whether he's going to give them a gut shot first or just take it right to their head and take it off. It won't matter. Every knee is going to bow. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, period. Think about it this way. It will only be the knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord that we persuade men. That's found at 2 Corinthians 5.11. See, we persuade men because of the terror of the Lord. Jesus, at Luke 12.5, said, Fear him, which after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, Fear God. If it is the love of God that people need, which is what the church world has decided is the way to reach those captivated and carried away in the lawlessness, then why? Why aren't the professed Christians abiding in that love which Jesus told us of at John 15.10? If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, this is the evidence that sinners, which all are, don't need to hear more of the love of God, but rather his wrath. If the love of God is what draws men to God, and of course they subsequently believe that God is love, then there's nothing more to be said, for God is a God of love. This is why the church world cannot affect obedience to God, because the goodness or the love of God, according to the Redeemer, is, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14.15 if you do not teach obedience and punishment of the commandments, how can the church and its members claim to love God? 1 John 5.3 puts it this way, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Let me ask you a question. What is the purpose for a God of love, whose plan for you is abundant life, but does not reveal the dangers of so much as his creation, let alone the dangers of disobedience to the laws of life. How can the child learn the depth of the love of the father until it is able to discern the depth of the danger the father has been warning him of? 
You see, the Son has need of the Father, and the Father has need of the Son. If one believes that God is a God of love, then why doesn't the church world spend its time teaching the body to love God above all else? But that in and of itself is a moral law of God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. If professing church world believes that God is love, then where are the lessons to love God above mother, above father, brother, sister, packers, broncos, cowboys, you know, American Idol? See, the commandments are God's lessons of his love. But the church world has put them away. And this causes the sin to flourish as the commandments reveal to us the manifestations of opportunity the commandments intend to restrict. This is how Paul stated it, Romans 7, 7-8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through, one would say, or in disregard of, or in spite of, the commandment, produces in me coveting of every kind. Drop down to verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to me to result in death for me. Verse 11. For sin, taking opportunity through, or in spite of, or in disregard of, the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Verse 13, Therefore did that which is good become death for me? May it never be. Rather it was the sin, basically, causing the death. I, Paul, meaning Paul, as are all bound by sin, are as walking dead men, continuing, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, more apparent. Sin and its attendant destructive tendencies alters and destroys the blessings of life. The law, as I said earlier, reveals the motive of sin, and in every single case it deprives one of the abundance of life. The world is full of these human examples. The sword of the Lord can bypass or it can be thrust through. The commandments of God are there to preserve abundant life. Jesus laid down his life to take the ramifications or the consequences due the sinner upon himself, not to excuse it. Once again, this sacrifice of his son exemplifies the greatness of the love that should warrant a great amount of reciprocal love. What is the only way to reciprocate that love? Obedience to the laws or commandments of life that all creation might have abundant life. The question now becomes, who then is to stand in the gap? To rebuke lawlessness. If the church world prohibits you from astigmatizing the sinner with descriptive terms such as sodomite, whoremonger, adulterer, plunderer, drunkard, covetous, viper, hypocrite, children of the devil, who then is to stand in the gap with the righteous judgment if the church world tells you to judge not? After telling his hearers of hypocritical judgment of the day, Jesus commanded, quote, judge righteous judgment, end quote. 
John 7.24. See, doesn't the church itself condemn itself by not judging righteous judgment in the church? Should the church not judge the sodomite of his continued sin? Should the church not judge righteous judgment upon the man and the woman of fornication and adultery? Should the church not judge righteous judgment upon the pedophile and the user, the plunder, the murderer? Who will stand in the gap of wickedness to bring to light the workers of iniquity and lawlessness? Is not the church world instructing the Christian to ignore Jesus' words? At Luke 17.43, Thou hast rightly judged. See, is not the church world ignoring that Jesus inquired of his hearers, quote, Why even of yourselves judge ye not is what is right? Luke 12.57 Now go with me quick to Romans 12.9 How can a professing Christian abhor that which is evil and cleave unto that which is good? Is not the church the pivot upon which the Christian stands in the gap, cleaving to that which is good and abhorring that which is evil? Is not the depth of the Christian's spiritual love evident as he that is spiritual judges things? 1 Corinthians 2.15 Is the church world instructing and are Christians informing themselves that the saints shall judge the world? angels, and therefore how much more things that pertain to this life, 1 Corinthians 6.23. Who's going to stand in the gap to be ill-spoken of, or falsely accused, beaten, and spit upon? Who is the church preparing, as Luke 6.22 instructs, to be he that is blessed when men hate you, and they that shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast you out of your out your name as evil for the son of man's sake how is the church world preparing us to stand in the gap and be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel second timothy 1 6 has the church forgotten yea and all that will live godly in christ jesus shall suffer persecution Second Timothy 3.12 Will you or your son become the righteous governor who orders Bibles back into the school in your state, instructs teachers to daily teach from it? Will you separate your child from the school who will not? Will you be the one who starts a Christian-based private school against the odds and successfully trains children to fear God and judge righteous judgment daily? Will you be the graduating valedictorian who professes every knee shall bow because you represent a generation of youth who will not allow God to be mocked? Will you be the one to stand in the gap and accept the stripes of persecution? The question is, will you join the army of the sword of the Lord and stand with him against the workers of iniquity? Will you stand in the gap and say, ladies and gentlemen, leave off this cancerous usury? Will you be the young woman who properly covers her physical anatomy, understanding that their purpose is sacred and serves as an anatomical function in the creation of nurturing and bearing the children fit for the kingdom of God? Or will you be the woman God referred to at Jeremiah 6.15 when he said, Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? Nay, they were not ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, at the time I visit, they shall be cast down. Or will you be the woman 
who the Lord will smite with a scab and lay bare your secret parts, as Isaiah 3.17 told. You see, what you are on the outside is what you are on the inside. Will you be the woman standing in the gap against fornication to advise the man, my body is as the members of Christ? Are you proposing I take this member of Christ and turn it to the member of a harlot? God forbid! 1 Corinthians 6.15 Or will you be the woman who flees fornication? 1 Corinthians 6.18 Will you men be the university administrator who stands in the gap against the gluttonous use of alcohol? proclaiming words such as heard at Habakkuk 2.15. Woe to him that giveth his friend or his neighbor drink, putteth the bottle to her, and maketh her drunken also, that they may look on her nakedness. Or will you be the man standing in the gap to convey Jesus turned water into wine, to make known his glory and power and deity, not for the purpose of making his disciples or the wedding guests drunk upon the wine, but that they would be filled with the knowledge of and believe upon his spirit, as John 2.11 and Ephesians 5.8 told us. Will you be the sons and daughters of God who rejects the idols of music, art, and dance? Or will you glorify God and magnify his name, singing with the Lord, The Lord is my shepherd. It has been said the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. However, I will say the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is good men becoming willing participants. When good men cease to become participants in sin, devices of the wicked seed have no marketable quality or characteristics. You want proof? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4 7. Will it be you? Who will stand in the gap and follow Jesus, forsaking houses, brethren, father, mother, children, wife, or lands for his name's sake? Will you be there to follow the sword of the Lord into battle with no foxhole or nest to lay your head, as Luke 9:57-58 says? You are no longer dead, but alive in Christ, thoroughly perfect unto all good works. Have you committed to stand in the gap, to stand for, and be a vocal witness for God? Will you stand in the gap as priests and kings, ministers of God to execute wrath upon evildoers? Or will you acquiesce to evildoers exercising wrath upon the workers of righteousness? How long will Christ's sons allow his deity to be blasphemed and denied the youth of America? How long will Christ's sons allow his blood to soak the earth in vain? When will you speak? Stand up and remain no more silent. It is with a special thanks I will always remember Pastor Peters. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Can't you see these are the kind Earth 
earthquakes, famines, and pestilence are all on the rise. The lava path is waxing cold, just the way that he foretold, with all these things now happening before our eyes. Can you feel the kingdom coming? Can't you sense a new day dawning? Rising like the morning sun with healing in its wings. Made up your minds to be believing. Prepare your hearts to be Prepare your hearts to be 